watching classic films, we should be wary of the optics through which they are conventionally viewed. The problem is, conventional wisdom not only determines our reading of the film, it limits future debate as to what else the film might be about. So The Exorcist still concerns faith, and is most certainly not a misogynist's dread for a pubescent girl. End of discussion. No, fresh perspectives are always needed. Just as culture changes, new takes on old works offer additional vantage points that can reveal yet more meaning. Consider Martin Scorsese's Casino. Released on November the 22nd, 1995, Casino was initially rebuffed as a rehash of Goodfellas. But the years since have revealed it to be a crucial chapter in Scorsese's continuing examination of materialism. Another way of looking at it is as an allegory for 1970s Hollywood. Because of their colossal commercial successes, Robert Altman, William Friedkin, Peter Bogdanovich, Francis Ford Coppola, Terence Malick, Hal Ashby, Steven Spielberg and Scorsese were each given enormous creative freedom by the studios, but one after the other, through all manner of excesses and indulgences, the directors would each squander the privilege. What about The Godfather? Adapted from Mario Puzo's best-selling novel, when Francis Ford Coppola's film was released into theatres on March the 10th, 1972, it was initially hailed as a masterwork of the gangster genre. In the years since, however, it has also come to be read as a family saga of tragic Sophoclean dimensions, a meditation on power and succession of Shakespearean proportions, a critique of capitalism and an investigation into ethnicity in 20th century America. Beyond that, you could discuss Coppola's insistence on setting the film just after World War II. Puzo's initial draft of the script had updated the plot to the late 1960s. But by keeping the original time frame, Coppola linked the Corleone Empire with America consolidating its position as a world power. Or you could discuss Nino Rota's score. Initially nominated for an Oscar, the Academy ruled it ineligible when it was revealed that Rota had rearranged an earlier melody he had composed for Eduardo de Filippo's 1958 comedy, Fortunella. But even Rota's slower version of his own original bears a resemblance to the aria Invano Alvaro from Giuseppe Verdi's opera The Force of Destiny. Or you could examine the Godfather's visual motifs. The film opens with a 27-minute wedding sequence and while the guests enjoy the celebrations outside in the sunshine, it is indoors, within the heavy shadows of the dawn study, that all manner of pledges and pacts are made. So, while the script sets up a division between the public and private, cinematographer Gordon Willis reinforces that through light and dark, 
which he uses to represent good and evil. But uh, now you come to me and you say, Don Corleone, give me justice. You don't ask for respect. You don't offer friendship. You don't even think to call me Godfather. Instead, you come into my house on the day my daughter's to be married and you ask me to do murder for money. And while all the Corleone men are dressed uniformly in tuxedos, Michael, played by Al Pacino, arrives dressed in his US Army uniform. So although he is a family member, Anna Hill Johnson's costume design instantly sets him apart. That division is doubled because Michael's wedding guest is neither Sicilian nor Italian. She is not even Catholic. Kay Adams, played by Diane Keaton, hails from Northern European Protestant stock, and Johnson puts her in a red dress with white polka dots, further isolating the couple from the other guests. A third motif arrives when the Don, played by Marlon Brando, hears cheering from the garden and looks out his window to see what is causing the commotion. It seems a natural enough thing to do, but it brings into play a sophisticated design. I'm talking about glass. Watch the film again and notice just how many times we look at events through glass. At times it is a shield protecting the Corleones from their enemies, but then at crucial moments, when the violence erupts, the glass breaks and the Corleone's power is threatened. Another way of analysing the film is how Coppola drew inspiration from earlier masters. The baptism sequence uses Sergei Eisenstein's montage techniques. In nomine Patris, et Fili, et While in an earlier sequence, Coppola lifts directly from several films by Alfred Hitchcock, including Suspicion, Notorious, North by Northwest and Psycho. When the dawn is gunned down in the street, Coppola opts for an unexpectedly high overhead shot showing the attack. Another, perhaps less obvious inspiration arrived when Hollywood chief Jack Waltz awakens to find the horse's head in his bed. As he screams three times, Coppola cuts from a close to a mid to a wide shot, which recalls the compositions and editing pattern Akira Kurosawa used in his Jidegeki epics The Seven Samurai, Throne of Blood and Yojimbo. Television impacted on Hollywood cinema in many ways. Firstly, by taking its audience, and then later, by instilling in that audience an acceptance of tighter framing, which meant that many films were filled out by two shots and close-ups. Coppola and Willis agreed to minimise such compositions, opting instead for mid, group and especially wide shots. Such compositions carefully situated the characters within the events, as well as locating those events within a wider social and historical context. For that, Coppola was taking a cue from Italian maestro Luchino Visconti. Visconti began as a neorealist with Assassione and La Terra Trema, developed an operatic style in Senso and The Leopard, and yet, all the while, made sure the camera never lost its intimacy with the ensemble cast. The best example being Rocco and his brothers, which incidentally was scored by Nino Rota.
And finally, John Ford. The Godfather's final shot echoes the closing image of the searchers, but again, there are other and finer examples. Look at the Godfather's dinner scenes, and they seem to replicate any number of Ford pictures. Four Sons, How Green Was My Valley, or The Grapes of Wrath. And then there's a sequence in Sicily when Michael first encounters Apollonia. It recalls the moment in The Quiet Man when Sean Thornton first set eyes on Mary Kate Danaher. Hey, is that real? She couldn't be. Ah, nonsense, man. It's only a mirage brought on by your terrible thirst. Let's now return to the theme of the immigrant experience. That was something Puzo had already explored in his 1965 novel, The Fortunate Pilgrim. It too was a saga of an Italian family. But where the Corleones lived in a sprawling family compound out on Long Island, the Angeluzzi's lived in the packed tenements of the Lower West Side. And unlike the Corleones who fought turf wars against other crime families, the Angeluzzi's struggled to cope with the Great Depression and the dread of their sons being drafted to fight in World War II. With such rich material, Puzo's novel was compared favourably to the works of Bernard Malamud and Henry Roth. But despite the reviews, the sales were poor. Here is Puzo in 1990. It all began when the publisher of my second novel, The Fortunate Pilgrim, said, I wish you would have more of the mafia in the book, it would have sold better. And I thought that was a good idea, so I wrote an outline for The Godfather and I showed it to him and he turned it down. About eight other publishers turned it down. And then Putnam, they never read the outline, but an editor asked me to come up and talk to uh, all the editors up there. So I went up there and I just told them a few mafia stories that I knew. And they gave me an advance and told me to go ahead. Puzo undertook three years' research, and the result, published on March the 10th, 1969, has since sold over 20 million copies. Its success fueled speculation that Puzo had combined real-life mafia figures Giuseppe Porfacci and Vito Genovese to create the character of Don Vito Corleone. But if you read Puzo's forwards to the 1997 edition of The Fortunate Pilgrim, you will learn that Puzo's real inspiration for the Don was his mother Maria. In fact, Maria Puzo had already turned up in The Fortunate Pilgrim as Lucia Santa Angeluzzi, the matter familias who strove to keep her four sons on the straight and narrow. But despite her best efforts, her eldest, Lorenzo, falls in with Pasquale di Luca, a local union president and clearly a Don in the making. Puzo declared that whenever he wrote dialogue for Don Corleone, it was his mother's voice he heard. I heard her wisdom, her ruthlessness, her uncontrollable love of family and for life itself. The Don's courage and loyalty came from her. His humility came from her. And so I know that without Lucia Santa, I would never have written The Godfather. What position do women hold in The Godfather? The Don's wife, Carmela Corleone, was played by Morgana King. King died on March the 22nd this year at the age of 87, but here she is in 1971, talking from the set while making the film. They have this large family of children that they love very deeply. Uh, she's very, very involved with uh, his life, but she doesn't involve his life uh, into the family picture. That's outside. It always remains outside. 
uh, whereas Sonny, uh, Sonny's just a good boy, and uh, she's probably been protecting him all his life against all of the hassles that he found. A jazz singer of Italian-American descent, King clearly understood the character. Before Carmela met Vita Corleone on New York's Lower East Side and became Mama Corleone, she had been born in Sicily, baptized into the Catholic Church, emigrated to America as a child, and married Vito while he was still a law-abiding citizen. Which means Carmela has long since justified her husband's villainy within the context of his providing for their family. By contrast, Kay Adams, born in Hanover, New Hampshire, and raised in the Baptist faith, met Michael Corleone in Dartmouth College and began dating him without ever having any reason to suspect his family were criminals. It is only at the wedding of his sister Connie that she finally meets his family. Oh, you look terrific. My brother Tom Hagen is oh, Kay Adams. How, how do you do? My nice father's been asking for you. Very nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Then Michael reveals the truth. My father made him an offer he couldn't refuse. What was that? Luca Brazzi held a gun to his head. And my father assured him that either his brains or his signature would be on the contract. That's a true story. Kay freezes with shock, but she clearly believes Michael when he says, That's my family, Kay. It's not me. Which is why she remains committed to him, even when he inexplicably disappears from her life. After Salazzo and McCluskey are gunned down, surely not a coincidence. And when Michael does return from Sicily, some two years later, we learn that Kay has neither married, forgotten him, nor given up on what she believes is his goodness. Kay, my father's way of doing things is over. It's finished. Even he knows that. I mean, in five years, the Corleone family is going to be completely legitimate. Which makes their final exchange so believable and so tragic. She asked Michael whether he had Connie's husband murdered. He assures her no. But as she walks away, she looks back into Michael's study, where, as the new dawn, he welcomes his henchmen. The door is closed over and she is shut out. However, that was not the way Coppola wanted to end the film. In the book and in the script, the final image was of Kay having converted to Catholicism in church, lighting a candle and kneeling to pray. As far as Coppola was concerned, this was the film declaring Michael, once a good man, was now in danger of losing his soul. But despite Coppola's protestations, Paramount executive Robert Evans insisted the film finish with the door closing on Kay. Evans was right. That ending avoids any mistake for sentimentality and, more importantly, leaves no hope for Michael. The look on Kay's face is one of dismay. She realises not only has Michael just lied to her, she is no longer privy to his life. But sadly, she never really was. The instant Michael learned his father had been shot, he raced across the street to the payphone, stepped inside and closed the door on Kay, leaving her outside, looking through the glass, already cut off from him. But what goes for Kay is worse for Connie. Played by Coppola's sister Talia Shire, Connie is savagely beaten while heavily pregnant and then left widowed, not because of her suffering but because her husband set up the hit on Michael's brother Sonny, played by James Caan. And as for Michael's first wife, Apollonia, played by Simonetta Stefanelli, 
she is murdered in a bomb attack intended for Michael. Women in The Godfather are most dreadfully abused, but the film certainly does not condone it. Instead, it depicts a world organised and run by men who show little, if any, regard for women. In which case, I'll leave the final words to Diane Keaton. In her memoir, Then Again, she wrote, As for the role of Kay, what epitomised it? The picture of a woman standing in a hallway, waiting for permission to see her husband. Thank you.